Our fifth, fifth lesson comes from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. And if you're new, we're in the middle of the Advent series um, of No Home-Like Place, finding our home in the places that we actually inhabit. And this morning, we're looking at this text, which really embodies some of the things that Richard was praying for earlier, how God envisions justice to come to bear upon the earth through cities and through the church being an alternative city in human cities. And so as we get started, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I pray that as we go through this difficult but yet hopeful text, that you would give us hope, that you would give us hope for our world and hope for ourselves, hope for our spouses and our families and our roommates and those that we work with and go to school with, and hope for the dark places in our city, hope that people would be fed and people would be cared for, people would be clothed, and as we pray for that, Lord, let us be agents of that. Let us long to be those people that provide those things for people who are hurting, just as you provided for us when we were hurting. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us as individuals and as a church to care for those around us and to extend your love and grace towards those who are needy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite writers, Frederick Beekner, tells a story of a Christmas sermon that he heard that moved him to tears. And the minister used a very common question during the holiday season— are you going home for Christmas? And for Beekner, this connected to something very deep in his soul. Where is home to be found? Where is the cure for our homesickness to be located in an, increasing, in an increasingly fragmented world? As we've seen in this series, Israel was familiar with that longing. They were enslaved and exiled more than they were at home. And the book of Isaiah is written to them in exile. They had been taken over by a succession of foreign powers, and now they wonder if they're permanently homeless, if God has forgotten them and has left them in the hands of their enemies. 
And Isaiah writes to them, and eight different times in this book, he reminds them of that one, that one of the most important aspects of faith is trusting God even when he seems absent, having hope in those times where, because of circumstances, hope is hard to locate. And that, scene, that's, that, um, that same theme is all through the Advent season, a time of intentional hope, of intentional waiting, that the promises of God still stand, that they're still in effect. A writer from the East Coast moved to Portland a few years ago, and he made this observation. The people here, I've found, are like the climate. They're mild and lacking in extremes. The city often strikes me not so much as Western, but as Midwestern. It's Mayberry with tattoos. A lot of the young people who flock here, who give the city so much of its look and character, originate in places like Minnesota or Missouri. They leave to escape the Jesus and hopelessness at home. They come because they feel like freaks and want to find a place where they can wear their spiky hair and put rings in their eyebrows. But they don't realize how much of Minnesota and Missouri they bring with them. We're all on a quest for home, aren't we? Some sense that we really belong, that we have rootedness, that we have an identity, that we have a location that we really identify with and that we can find meaning in. And people is full, Portland is full of people just like this writer, people leaving something behind, questing for something new, searching for a sense of belonging. And the ironic thing being that many of us have traveled away from our physical home of our upbringing in search of our cure for homesickness. Well, what about you? Where's home for you? Do you at times feel lost in this world? Do you feel that sense of cosmic homesickness, of loneliness, of displacement, asking yourself over and over, who am I and where is this journey leading, if anywhere at all? And don't we look around at our world full of terror and displacement and violence and prejudice and fear and wonder, will it ever be any different? Is there reason to pray for these things? Is there reason to have hope in the midst of these horrible circumstances? Well, Isaiah tells us that indeed it is, and it de- indeed it will. He says, first of all, in verse 2, you have made the city a heap of rubble. In Hebrew, this is what they call the prophetic perfect. It's something that is so certain to take place that they talk about it in the past tense. The city will be a heap of rubble. Now, Isaiah talks about cities a lot. Sixty times throughout his prophecy, he's referring to cities and what is going on there and what should be going on there. And they can be specific places or they can be symbolic or both. And here, the city that he's talking about is the city of man. It's a city where anything goes and nothing matters. In chapter 24, he calls it the city of Tohu. This is the same word that in Genesis 1 means formless and void, that the earth existed without form and void of any presence, that God, it was without God and therefore without order and without direction. What goes on in this place? The city of Tohu, the city of man. Well, first of all, it's a place of terror. 
Verse 4, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. Ruthless is a word for terror and violence. It's also a place of death. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. And a shroud is part of funeral clothes. It represents death. This city, the city of man, the city of progress, it may give off a sense, uh, an appearance of life, of creativity, of energy, but it's all heading down the line to death. It's a place of terror, it's a place of death, and it's a place of sadness. Verse 8, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. In this city, all faces know sadness, and happiness is a fleeting temporary experience. And then finally, it's a, it's a place of oppression. Verse 4, we see that the needy and the poor are in distress. This city is a city of self-attainment and self-promotion and self-concern. And so people move forward at the expense of others. And so the successful and the powerful are at the top, and the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and the needy are at the bottom. But what is Isaiah telling us when he says this city will be no more? He's saying that that situation will be entirely inverted, that God will come to act on behalf of the needy and against the prideful and the powerful. And when that happens, what will happen? It will be said on this day, verse 9, this is truly our God. We have waited on him and he has delivered us. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Think about this with me. He could have just said, I'm going to end suffering, I'm going to bring about justice. But that would be a bit of an abstraction and maybe hard to, iman- hard to imagine. But what does he say? I'm going to wipe the tears off your faces, off your cheeks. Well, who does that? Who wipes tears off of faces? Well, mothers do that. Parents do that to children. They stoop. And the purpose is not only to dry the face, although that's part of it. The purpose is to end the pain. The purpose is to give comfort. They stoop to put an end to the pain that the child is experiencing. And hear what God is saying, that in correlation to the destruction of that city, he also has a great love for this other city, which we'll get to in a moment. And what he is saying is that not only are we going to end injustice, not only am I going to put an end to oppression and terror and poverty and violence, but I love you so deeply and I'm so connected with your heart that I don't want to just comfort you in the midst of your pain, but I plan on putting an end to pain altogether. I will wipe away every tear, God says. Well, what is this? We've talked about this idea. This is emotional, spiritual, social, psychological flourishing. This is that big idea of peace in all of its forms, of shalom in the Hebrew Bible, the way things were meant to be originally. Terror, death, sadness, oppression that exists in that city is replaced with peace and life and joy and liberation. That's the future city. That's the city to come. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, well, we read about the city of man. That's pretty obvious. And then we have Moab at the beginning. It's even identified. But what about the city of God? Where is that? Well, the answer is right in the middle of the passage. It says, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. He will swallow up death for a minute, for forever. On this mountain. Well, wait a minute. That, that sounds like Mount Hood, not Portland. That's outside. That's not a city. But yes, it is. Psalm 48 talks about great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, on the mountain of His holiness, beautiful in its elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great King. You see, Jerusalem, which was this real place, but also an image of this future city that the prophets use so often, had at its center, on the highest place in the city, Mount Zion. That's where the temple existed. In the city of God, in the mountain of God. That is what Isaiah is talking about. That this peace, this new reality will descend to the mount of God's temple, to Mount Zion in His holy city. It was a way of symbolizing that the city was built around God and His salvation. And the hopes of the prophets was salvation, not in the abstract, but in a place, in a city, in reality. And there's a double redemption going on here then because the promise is particularly to Israel in this prophecy that their humiliation would be removed, that their sin would be washed away once and for all. And that all of their waiting these many centuries was justified because God was faithful to his promises. But God had something even bigger and grander in mind. Do you ever get confused if you're just reading through the Old Testament, as I'm sure all of you do all the time? Do you get confused? It seems like at many times that the Old Testament is both nationalist, it is about Israel particularly, and that everyone outside of Israel, everyone not Israel, is enemies of God. But then in the other, other times, you read it and it has this more universal scope, and it gets confusing. Is God preoccupied with Israel, or is he, does he care about the world? Does he care about other nations that are not Israel? Well, a passage like this presupposes a different configuration of that question altogether. It presupposes that that antithesis is a false one, ultimately. That Isaiah is writing to Israel that they've been exiled from their homeland, their holy city. But this incredible banquet that he describes in verses 7 through 9 isn't just for Israel alone. He describes these unending delights. And what does he say? All nations, all peoples, all faces, all the earth. You see, though, Israel and Moab are national entities. They represent something far more deep. That Moab's resistance, the city of man's arrogance and pride and opposition to God, and this oppressive violence will one day be laid low. And it's not because they're the wrong nationality. It's not because they're the wrong ethnicity. It's because they represent the city of chaos, the city of Tohu, the city of formlessness and void where God's presence and direction is rejected. It's the city of opposition to God. 
And Israel, on the other hand, isn't saved because of their nationality or their ethnicity or their intrinsic goodness. But their salvation is paradigmatic for the whole world, that what God is doing in Israel will take shape, first of all there, but will spread to all the world, to all faces, to all nations and all peoples. You see, Jerusalem isn't just Israel's capital. It's not just a city in the Middle East, but it's representative of God's holy presence. It's where God dwells particularly. It's a, it's a thin place. And when the New Testament writers talk about salvation, they begin to talk about cities. Revelation 21, as was read earlier, Jerusalem is a city that is coming down where God will reign in justice and goodness and everything that is broken and sad about our world will become undone and turned backwards. You see, God's commitment to Israel and his concern and care for the nations holds together. They're bound up together. They can't be separated. And so we read centuries later, Jesus comes and he's teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's inviting everyone to partake of the loving kindness of God. And what does he say? In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are what? You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. Let your good works shine forth so that men may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. You are a city on a hill. You know, when he says this, he's not just pulling a metaphor out of the air. But it's a teaching moment because he, as a Jewish rabbi, knows the Old Testament, knows Isaiah, knows how salvation has been embodied in the city of Jerusalem. And he says, now you are that city. He's saying to his disciples, to anyone who knows Jesus, whose life has been changed through his radical grace, anyone who has begun to experience his peace, to get a piece of that shalom in their own lives, He is saying on the base of his peace that he extends to you, that you are to form an alternative city, that you are the alternate city of God that lives and exists in every human city. You see, as we talked about last week, the city of man and the city of God, the church does not become a city that exists unto itself, walled off from the rest of the city, but exists in the city. They're laid on top of each other. And that the church is meant to be an alternate city that presupposes, that brings that future city into the presence of reality now, into our human cities now. They are to be representative. We as a church are to be representative of what will be finally and fully true in God's holy city. That everything that is practiced there should be practiced here. That the poor and the needy and distressed are given refuge that the sad and the friendless and the lonely and the broken have their their tears wiped away in love, where we throw parties and banquets and rejoicing over the forgiving love that lives here, not because we are so good, not because of our nationality or ethnicity or our intrinsic goodness, but because Jesus has deposited his grace in this place. And then it becomes a place where people can find a cure for their cosmic homesickness. Beekner goes on to say that this is actually what he was longing for. 
in the Christmas sermon when he was asked, are you going home for Christmas? And he says, as soon as he heard the question, he knew the real answer. And he writes this, I can almost see the minister with his glasses glittering in the lectern light as he peered out on all those people and asked again, are you going home for Christmas? And he asked it in some way that brought tears to my eyes and made it almost unnecessary for him to move on to his answer to the question, which was that home, finally, is the manger in Bethlehem, the place where at midnight even oxen kneel. Home is where Christ is. Home is where Christ is. You see, in this series, we've been talking about the importance of place and implicitly and now specifically in this sermon, the importance of cities, the importance of our city. But that these are important because they are the places where we meet God, where we cultivate a relationship with Him, where we bring His grace to bear upon the brokenness and needs of cities. Ultimately, home is never a place, but home is a person, the person of Jesus And He is who we celebrate. He is who we wait on. He is who we place our hopes in in this time of Advent. He is where we look for home. And just as Isaiah told Israel those many centuries ago, that hope, that patience, that waiting is worth it. In fact, it is the very ingredients of faith. He says in verse 9, In that day they will say, In that day, after this, these long times of waiting, they will say, surely this is our God. We waited on Him. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that just as You were not a concept You are not abstract, you are not a theory, but you are a person, that you are a place where God's presence dwelled in fullness. Lord, I pray that as we go about our faith, as we go about our daily lives, that our faith would not be abstract, it would not be just a theory, it would not be a set of doctrines that we hold and believe only in our heads, but that we live them out in the places that we inhabit, or give us courage to live boldly, to have hope that continues and prospers and is nurtured in times where hope seems to be useless. Let us wait patiently. Let us look for you in the small things. Lord, we pray as we conclude this time of service that you would give us of worship, you would give us a sense of your presence in this place and that you would move us into our places with great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.